Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, 27th chapter, and verses 1 through 14. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Well, they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went. And he hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to uh, put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel. And they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders... He gave no answer. So then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer. Not even to a single charge. So that the governor was greatly amazed. And this is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here today. Let's take our Bibles, if you haven't already, and... Look at this passage, Matthew 27. Today we're going to examine the lives of two men, Pilate and Judas, and see what we can learn. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your word, and this is your day, the Lord's day. And at the intersection of this text and our lives, we have come with an expectation today, and that is to hear from you. We come from various walks of life, from various situations that have come upon us in this last week, and we are now asking that for the next few moments you would clear the deck of our minds and let us just simply receive the word of God given for us. We pray that, um, Lord Jesus, you would be exalted and lifted up today and that we would sense deeply within our souls a warning about what it is to be like Judas or to be like Pilate And then run us, we pray, as fast as we can, run us to yourself and remind us of the beauty of what you have done in your crucifixion so that we could be free from sins that would cause us to be ruined. And so we pray for your help today. Be our teacher, we pray, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There are certain people whose lives are intended to be a warning for us. 
the reason we have them in the Bible is so that when we look at their lives, we can see them as a bit of a metaphor as to how we should not live our lives. Think of them like a, a warning sign, if you would, on a curvy road. Push it too fast and you could run your car or your life right off the cliff. In the Old Testament, there's lots of examples of people who lived lives that the Bible says you ought to watch how they lived and not live like that. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he goes on to say, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. A few examples. Cain, who murdered his brother. Esau, who sold his birthright. Lot's wife, who looked back. Balaam, who was filled with greed. And and Korah, who led an infamous rebellion that resulted in his entire family being swallowed up by the earth. These are biblical examples, metaphors, if you will, of people whose lives you would not want to emulate. In fact, Jude chapter 11 says regarding false teachers, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. So these are people or scenarios that fit a biblical metaphor. And we do this in our own culture. For instance, I'm sure that in the last number of days you've heard somebody on the news say, boy, I sure hope that this Japan nuclear crisis doesn't become another Chernobyl. So Chernobyl is the metaphor of something terrible. Or if you watch the news over the weekend of what happened in Martinsville, With a school shooting, someone might say, boy, I'm glad what happened in Martinsville wasn't another Columbine. And and so we have certain instances where people or scenarios or situations or events become metaphors, if you will, of warning. Things that we ought to heed, listen to, and to be aware. So Judas Iscariot and Pontius Pilate are both prime examples of warning signs in the scriptures. They They both have infamous actions connected to them. Judas's kiss and Pilate's washing his hands. In both cases, if you were to have somebody in our culture say they were betrayed by a kiss, you know exactly what they're talking about. As well, if somebody said, I washed my hands of this situation, you know exactly what they're talking about. Their actions have become metaphors of either betrayal or injustice. So last week we saw Matthew 26 to 47 to 68, We saw Jesus, who was unfairly treated by his friend, alleged friend Judas, and also unfairly treated by the justice system. We saw the Sanhedrin, the highest-ranking Jewish governing body, become a lynch mob. We saw Judas betray his master, his rabbi. And from a timeline standpoint, we pick up the text, it's Friday morning, early Friday morning, the day that Jesus will be crucified. Verse 1 is where our text begins. It says, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. 
So central to the story of Jesus' crucifixion are the characters both of Judas in his betrayal and Pilate in terms of his abdication of his responsibility. And so what I want to do today is I want to explore a little bit more in depth the life of Judas and the life of Pilate since they're such critical characters. And I want you to understand what it was that they both did and how we should then be warned about either being like them and what this means for us in terms of our relationship with Jesus and how we ought to respond to him. Because I think you'll find that in Judas and Pilate, there's an element of their kind of response in all of us. And so we ought to be warned. Let's begin with Judas. In Judas, we see what happens when greed leads to regret and ruin. So when greed leads to regret and ruin. Now, this is not the first time that we've talked about Judas. In fact, we've seen him throughout the narrative of the last moments of Jesus' life. But what I want to do is go back and kind of reset, if you will, the stage for Judas so that we can look at what was perhaps going on inside of his heart. Or maybe this question, what was it that motivated Judas to betray Jesus in this way? So Matthew first introduces us to Judas, the character, in chapter 10 and verse 4, when he's simply listing all of the disciples in sort of a laundry list. And he lists Judas in this way. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. So we, we know that Judas was the one who betrayed him, but, but what is this Judas Iscariot thing? Iscariot is a title that's a bit of a mystery. It could mean a number of things. It could mean first some sort of reference to where his family was from. Uh, it, it also could refer to him in sort of a code language as being a liar. I think, however, the name Iscariot is connected to a Semitic word that had a relationship to his family's connection with extreme Jewish nationals. Let, let me explain. Iscariot can be a Semitic form of a word that means dagger bearer, or also Iscariot can be the form of a word that means assassin. And it may have been that Judas's family was connected with a, a fairly prominent political mindset in the day, similar to the Zealots, and sort of a wing of the Zealots, in an attempt to try and throw off the Roman government from oppressing the Jewish people. And it may have been that Judas' family was somehow connected with this political and religious movement. And so it would seem that Judas likely joined the disciples because he saw an opportunity to advance his personal agenda. Here was a one, a man who comes, a rabbi, a teacher, and, and Judas senses in him, aha, here's the movement that will cause us to give rise to our agenda and our aim, which is to throw Rome out of our land. Judas Iscariot. There are some other things that we know about him. We know that he was directly influenced by Satan. Uh, John chapter 6, Jesus says this about Judas. Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, did I now choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? So Jesus is referring very specifically to Judas. In fact, John says he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, one of the twelve, who was going to betray him. So we know that, that, that Judas was associated with the devil. We also know that he was empowered by the devil. Luke 22, 3 tells us that at the end of the Passover, before Judas went to betray Jesus, Luke says very specifically that Satan entered into Judas. So 
before Judas went and betrayed Jesus, before he um, delivered him to them, or even made the sort of arrangement of delivering him for 30 pieces of silver, Judas was possessed by a satanic and evil influence that somehow Judas willingly embraced. We also know that Judas was motivated by some level of greed. And I think this is central to his motivation as to why he actually betrayed Jesus. And we've seen this in part in a story that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Go back to Matthew 26 and in particular look at verse 8. This particular story is one where Jesus arrives at the house of Mary, Martha, and also Lazarus. And it's in this house that while they're reclining at um, a meal, Mary takes a very expensive ointment and pours it over Jesus' head and also over his feet. Mark's account of this in Matthew 26, 8 is that when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They, they looked at that and were like, ah, oh, what a waste. And they said, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Well, John's account of that same situation in John chapter 12 tells us that it wasn't just the whole disciples that said this, but rather that it was Judas who raised this issue about the waste of money. And then John offers this commentary. He says, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. So if we put all this together, a man coming from a family known as Iscariot, uh, empowered by the devil, um, filled with greed, we see that just after that anointing happens, that there's something in that moment, if you go back to Matthew 26, 14, you'll see that immediately following this moment where Judas sees the waste of money and sees that Jesus says, what are you worried about? You'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. Something clicks in Jesus' mind at that point. In verse 14, it says, then one of the twelve was named was Judas went to the chief priests and said what will you give me if I deliver him over to you so we put all this together and what do we conclude Uh, we conclude that Judas wanted something more from Jesus than what he was seeing it had to be more than money because 30 pieces of silver that that wasn't a whole lot of money so something was going on here Judas sold out Jesus for more than just money Likely what was happening here is that Judas was looking for a military political messiah. Somehow he was looking for Jesus to come and take Rome off of the back of the Jewish people. And in the course of his understanding of what Jesus was really all about, Judas became disillusioned when Jesus' ministry, don't miss this, no longer fit his desired ends. So when Jesus no longer fit where Judas wanted to go... Jesus became expendable to Judas. He wanted something, and when it was clear that Jesus wasn't going to lead him to his desired end, he ditched Jesus, left him, abandoned him. This is the greed, the greed of his heart. He wanted something, and when Jesus didn't fit the equation of him getting what he wanted, Jesus could be thrown away. Remember that, we'll come back to it at the end, how often this is the case as to why people even come to church, maybe even why you've come today, because you want something. And what will happen 
if you follow a Judas path, is while your life is going great and grand and all, all the way that you expected, you'll, you'll be on board 100%. And then when things don't go your way, you'll abandon the faith because the reality was you were in this thing in the first place, not because of Jesus, but because of what you wanted from Jesus. And there's a world of difference of loving Jesus for Jesus or loving Jesus for what Jesus gives you. Matthew 27, 3 tells us that Judas regretted his decision of betraying Jesus. It says that when Jesus, when he saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. The word that Matthew used here means great regret. The NIV renders it, he was seized with remorse. In other words, he felt bad. I mean, not just bad, he felt terrible. He was torn up on the inside. No doubt he thinks in his mind, what have I done? What, what have I done? He feels horrible. He feels terrible. He, he can probably see where this is going. Maybe he didn't think that Jesus would be condemned maybe to death. Maybe he just thought he'd be arrested or whatever. Now it's got it out of Judas's ability to control, and he feels terrible. He feels awful. He, he can now see the consequences of what's going to happen. However, don't confuse this regret with repentance. There's a huge difference. This is the word that the Bible does not normally use for the word repentance. And by his actions, we know that Judas was just filled with regret, not with true repentance. There's a difference. And let me show you how. Judas doesn't go back to Jesus. He doesn't go back and become one of his followers. He doesn't show up at the courtyard like Peter was or like allegedly John was. He doesn't try and become a follower. He doesn't go to Jesus and try and ask his forgiveness. He doesn't confess his sin to Jesus. No. What does Judas try and do? Judas tries to manage the situation by himself. And what he fails to realize was that his self-centeredness is what got him into this trouble. And what's remarkable is his self-centeredness is still how he conducts himself even while he feels terrible. Find somebody whose life is filled with greed, and when they are upset and hurt and even mad at what they've done, they still are self-centered in how they respond to it. It's remarkable. The best decision you could come to in all of your life is to realize you can't fix your life. Coming to realize that I'm done with myself, I can't do this, I need help. So what does he do? He attempts to bring back the 30 pieces of silver to the priests. He, he says that he knows he's betrayed innocent blood, so he tries to, to at least give the money back. Can I get a refund or something? The priests, though, are unsympathetic. They're not receptive. Verse 4, they say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Yeah, this should come as no surprise. They don't care if he was innocent. That wasn't the end game. It wasn't about innocence or guilt. It was about framing him. That's what it was about. So who cares? It's on you. What's that to us? So he's innocent. Oh, well. And then Judas takes the money, chapter 27, verse 5, and he throws it into the temple. He knows that what he has done is wrong. He feels guilty. He wants the guilt to stop. But when regret is the primary motivation for actions, it always leads the wrong direction. You can say that you're sorry. You can say that you've changed. You can say that things are different. But the reality is your actions betray you. Great example, pop culture. Chris Brown, interviewed by Good Morning America this week about his uh, on and off again relationship with Rihanna. 2009, restraining order was issued. Robin Roberts asked him, so have you had any contact with her? Looks uncomfortable in the scene. 
Allegedly, after the scene closes, gets up, runs to his dressing room, tears off his shirt, throws a chair through the window in New York City, and then tweets, I am so over people bringing this up. (laughs) Yeah, right, you are. Right? So no matter what you say, your actions, your verbs, you can say, I'm sorry, I can say, I feel bad. But the reality is, unless your actions fit with the essence of what true repentance is, you're just saying words. And listen, anybody can say words. So Judas can't find absolution for his regret. He can't find anyone to... And this is what a person who's filled with regret and remorse, but not repentance, they try and find people to make them feel better. They'll come to folks like me, pastors, ministry leaders, and they'll, they'll tell us the, the story of what's going on, and they want us to tell them, it's okay, it wasn't your fault. They don't want to hear, that was really bad, now you've got to go make it right. And while you're at it, stop trying to run your own life. This ought to be a wake-up call. People don't want to hear that. They want to hear, hey, it wasn't your fault. It's probably some like your fifth uncle in the past. Some way had a bad problem. And you're just, you're just dealing with it. You got this, this issue from way back when. It's not your issue. It's, it's how you were raised. It's your mama. It's your daddy. It's your environment. Judas can't find absolution. And so here's what he does. He, he follows his self-centered greed to its ultimate end. And you know where self-centered greed runs all the way to the end? Self-centered greed, when you can't get absolution from the guilt that you feel and you refuse to do what you know you're supposed to do, you know where that leads? That leads to suicide. He wants the pain to stop and he will not repent. So here's just another little data point for you. If there's ever a moment in your life when you just feel so absolutely down that you actually think for a moment about taking your own life, can I just tell you that would be the most self-centered thing in all the world to do. And that's what the enemy wants you to do. He wants you to hate yourself and not do what's right and then finally go all the way to the end where you just are so filled with self-regret and self-remorse and self-focus that you're like, you know what, I'll just take my own life so at least the pain will stop. And this is what Judas does. The despair that comes from a disappointment in an idol pushes him to take his own life. Verse 5 tells us very bluntly that he hanged himself. To be hanged, according to Deuteronomy 21, 23, was to invoke the curse of God. Acts one nineteen makes it even more grotesque, indicating that at some point either the rope broke or the branch broke or something, but Judas's body fell into the ravine, and when he fell into the ravine, his bowels gushed out. So here's this image of a betraying man who's not been repentant, hangs himself, who's disemboweled in the body of this ravine. The text then ends with an ironic and tragic twist. The religious rulers, who are so unconcerned about injustice when it comes to Jesus, suddenly now get a moral backbone, quote-unquote, about what they should do with blood money. It's amazing how they pick and choose when they're going to be religious. Verse 6, But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and brought, so they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Again, Matthew wants you to know all of this is part of God's 
fulfillment plan. And they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for a potter's field as the Lord directed me. So the conclusion then is that Judas is ruined. His, his death has come because of his despair. His greed led to regret, which led to his ruin. And unfortunately, this is a familiar path in how many people respond to Jesus. There's greed in their heart. <clears throat> Self-centeredness that's rolling on in their soul. They follow a God of their own making. Refuse to do things the way that God has asked them to do. And before you know it, they're on a path that leads to destruction. And even in his regret, here is Judas who is self-centered. And the warning that comes from the disaster of his life is the warning about unbridled greed and self-centered regret. Listen to me. Listen to me. If you let greed rule your life, not just about money, I mean about everything, that you're just trying to make everything always about you, you will use people and relationships, you'll use your kids, you'll use your wife, and yes, you will even use Jesus to try and get you what you want. And when your, when your get is frustrated, when your desire is somehow hindered, you will tear your house down to try and get what you want. And this is the example of Judas whose greed brought ruin. Next, Pilate. Pilate, if you could choose a metaphor, it wouldn't be a noose like Judas was hanged, but rather it would be a basin of water. And the warning sign from Pilate could be boiled down into one word, which is the word indifference. It's when Pilate says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Where he's trying to wash away any responsibility that he has for what happens to Jesus. It's as if he's saying, whatever, just do what you want. Whatever, just do what you want. Just do it, just whatever. I'm not responsible. And how many times in life have you seen people, and maybe in your own life, or maybe even now, when it comes to who Jesus is, you throw up your hands, you're like, whatever, whatever. You're raised up in a Christian home, your mom and dad were like, look, this is what God says, this is how you're supposed to live your life. You're like, whatever, whatever. You got a spouse who's coming here to church, she's brought you along today, and you're here, and you look at her faith, and you're like, whatever, works for you, whatever, and you think that whatever is a safe position. I'm here to tell you that whatever is not safe. And we're going to see that through the life of Pilate. Matthew records the following encounter with Pilate, and we see his curiosity peaked. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, "What are you the king of the Jews? And he said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, even not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. So Pilate begins these proceedings by asking him, look, are you the king of the Jews or not? And, And then we see that after Jesus says, you said so, the Priests begin bringing all sorts of additional accusations against him to try and probably convince Pilate that indeed Jesus is guilty. And this charge of are you the king of the Jews is a really important one because it represents the single charge that could 
really get Jesus killed because king of the Jews would be a blasphemous charge on the part of the Jews, but it would also be a seditious charge on the part of the Romans. And so the Jewish leaders are hoping that this thing of the king of the Jews will be the thing that will cause the combination of their laws and Roman laws to combine in order to be able to kill Jesus and remove him from their midst. So Pilate's amazed. Don't you hear all these things that they're saying about you? But Jesus doesn't answer, doesn't say a word, and he does that to fulfill what was written in Isaiah 53, 7. Here is your Savior who was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Sidebar, if you've ever been accused, ever had anyone assault you, say horrible things, and you can't say anything back, and you've got to be silent and bear just this sense of injustice, just remember, yeah, Jesus did that too. So Pilate doesn't know what to do with him. It could be that he's never seen anybody like him. It could be that he found the charges to be bogus. It could be that he's heard things about him before, like Herod had when Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod in Luke chapter 23 says, Oh, I'm glad that you're here. I've, I've wanted to see you, have you do a miracle or something. It may be Pilate's just heard about him, but regardless, the text tells us that Pilate was amazed. He was curious. However, his curiosity was short-lived because it wasn't long until another emotion took over, and that was the emotion of fear. If you skip ahead to Matthew 26, 24, it's not part of the specific purview of our text today, but you'll read these words. It says, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, so he's, he's having this conversation with the religious leaders, and, and as well, we'll look at it next week, he brings Barabbas out in front of them and says, shall I release Jesus or Barabbas? And, and when the crowd clearly is just in a, 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 a bloodthirsty desire to have Jesus killed, the text says, when this was accomplishing nothing, when he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, that's when we see that the indifference comes. This is when Pilate washes his hands. Now, to understand why he washed his hands and to understand what's going on here, you have to understand a little bit about Pilate's history. He was appointed as the Roman governor or procurator over Judea, which was the region in Jerusalem, by the emperor Tiberius. He served in this role from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D., 10 years. Judea was an occupied land. It was stuck between major superpowers, and it traded hands between superpowers so many times. And when Rome conquered the the world in the the ancient Near East, it, it occupied Jerusalem and the entire Judea region and tried to keep the Jewish people under the thumb of Rome. And so therefore, if you are going to try and rule this people, you want a leader who is neither a slacker or a weak man. And Pilate was neither. In fact, historical sources tell us that Pilate was cruel, imperious, and insensitive. And likely, and I believe, he was also anti-Semitic. He hated Jews. This was not a prestigious post to receive. This was a post that you sent somebody in and just said, fix it. Just don't let it get out of control. It's alleged that while he was the governor of Judea, he stole money from the temple in order to build particular public works projects, particularly an aqueduct. 
and that when the protesters um, somehow got wind of it and began to riot, Pilate sent in forces and numerous people were killed. On multiple occasions throughout his governorship, he infuriated the Jewish people. In fact, Luke 13.1 tells us that he intermingled the Gentile blood in the temple area because of some sort of revolt. He, he set up Roman standards throughout the city of Jerusalem, shields or, or, or symbols, if you will, of Roman dominance, and then infuriated the people. Think of um, German swastika flags flying at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. And according to Philo, a Jewish philosopher and historian, King Agrippa once sent a letter describing Pilate to another king as this. Pilate, a man of very inflexible disposition, very merciless, as well as very obstinate. <laughs> the problem is, is that we see a different Pilate in the Bible. It doesn't seem to be necessarily overly cruel, although certainly the flogging is awful, but it seems as though he's weak-kneed and acquiescent. Why? Well, I think it's because of what's going on at the time. It's likely that the events in Jesus' life, in the context of Matthew, are happening when Pilate is on thin ice with Rome. The trial of Jesus probably occurred in close proximity to a major flare-up that had just happened in the city of Jerusalem, likely over Pilate's setting up these standard-bearer shields or symbols all over the city of Jerusalem. The riot that ensued, and Caesar himself had to intervene and told Pilate, take the standards down. He was directly rebuked by Rome, And the Jewish leaders probably knew that Pilate was on the hot seat. In fact, only three years after Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate was recalled from Judea, punished, and banished for the rest of his life. Therefore, when Jesus comes to Pilate, he comes to the capital city of the Jewish people, he comes to a political governor who doesn't like Jews in the first place, who's probably in Jerusalem just to keep things quiet and knows that his job and his neck is on the line if bad things happen in this city. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He sends him to Herod, hoping hoping that will solve it. When that doesn't work, he flogs him, mercilessly beats him, parades him in front of the people, and when they still want him dead, then he finally says... I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And here's where we see this important word, this word indifference. Look at verse 24, chapter 27. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now, this is an interesting practice because this was not part of Roman tradition. A ruler wouldn't wash his hands like this. What he is doing, he's appealing, I think in spite, to a Jewish custom connected to Deuteronomy chapter 21. When the elders of a city found a dead body, someone who had been apparently murdered, and they didn't know who had done it, and they didn't want the guilt to be upon their city, Deuteronomy 21.6 says this, Then all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify, Our hands did not shed this blood. 
So what what Pilate is doing, I think, is by no coincidence. He is filled with spite for the Jewish people, and he is filled with indifference to Jesus. And here he makes a mistake that he will regret for all eternity. He thinks that by not making a decision about Jesus, he is absolving himself of guilt. He washes his hands and says, whatever. You Jews just want to kill this guy? Go ahead. He's your king or whatever. I don't care if he's a king. In fact, later on in one another gospel, Jesus will talk about truth and Pilate will say, what is truth? I mean, this, this, this attitude of whatever, who cares, just do what you want. And then when Jesus hangs on the cross, it's no wonder that to put it to the Jewish people in their face, he says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So there is a racial, there is a political, there is a religious conflict that is embedded within this text. And even though Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, even though his curiosity is piqued, it is trumped by fear and he chooses the path of indifference. So he washes his hands, but make no mistake about it, Pilate is not clean. So what do we make of all of this? Here's three things. The first is this. Friends, beware of where greed will take you. So Pilate and Judas, Adam and Eve all had something in common. You know what it is? It's the same thing that you and I have in common. It's the same thing that you have in common with all four of those individuals. It's the problem of greed. All four of them want something and... That something took them down a path opposite of God's. Eve wanted to be like God. Adam didn't want to be the only person in the garden who didn't know the difference between good and evil. Judas wanted power. Pilate wanted Jesus to not be his problem anymore. See, this is the issue with greed. It doesn't matter what the object is. It could be relationships. It could be what people think of you. It can be money. It can be... Jumping from relationship to relationship. It can jumping from job to job. It could be jumping from different physical appearance. Forget the object. The object isn't the problem. The problem is the idolatry underneath. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, that greed or covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, beware of where greed will take you because greed at the end of the day is just our attempt to be our own God, to run our own life, to have life as you really want it. And tragically, some people come to Jesus this way. They come because they just don't want to go to hell. And then for the rest of their life, they're like, you know what the Bible says? Whatever. I know where I'm going when I die. And they never think that their life needs to fit with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They just are glad that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. And my fear is they will be tragically surprised that a relationship to Jesus was supposed to be a lot more than fire insurance. It was supposed to be an overarching commitment, an overarching orientation of one's life, that you say, I'm done with me, I need you to run my life. That's what it means. See, Jesus has come, listen, Jesus has come to conquer our greed To show us that there is nothing more needed in my life than for me to be forgiven of everything that I am apart from God. The problem with me is me. Jesus has come to show us that there is nothing more valuable than making Christ one's Lord. And that's why he dies. 
So Jesus came to bring an end to self-focused greed, this self-focused greed that will ruin your life and in the end will damn your soul if you do nothing about it. So beware of where greed will take you. Here's number two. Beware of confusing regret with repentance. Oh, beloved, there is a huge difference between regret and genuine repentance. A huge difference between the two. Don't confuse being sorry or feeling bad with actually being repentant. There there are so many people, they feel bad about the consequences of what they've done. It's affected their marriage, it's affected their kids, it's affected their job. They don't, what they don't like is they don't like how their sin has cost them something, but they don't do anything about it to change. That person is not truly repentant because they feel feelings that are similar to repentance. They're just regretful and remorseful, but still in their sin. Consequences are meant to awaken the soul, to help you realize you can't do this again. But sometimes consequences can also harden the heart. The Apostle Paul explains to us the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. Listen, here are the characteristics of godly sorrow. You ready? What earnestness. I mean, you're done with you, so you get after it. What eagerness to clear yourself. doesn't mean you try and clear your name. It means that you're going to work hard to be sure that people know that you're a different person. You're going to really change. What indignation. You're, you're sick of who you are. What alarm. You are freaked out. Not by what other people have done, but by what you have done. What concern. You're concerned for others. What readiness to see justice done. You are willing to embrace any consequence with joy because you deserve far more than what you're getting. Oh, be careful about regret that isn't true repentance. You see, feeling bad and doing nothing about it doesn't equal repentance. True repentance is a turning from sin and a turning to Christ. Here's what John Piper says on the difference. Worldly regret is when you feel sorry for something you did because it starts to backfire on you and leads to humiliation or punishment. It's the reflex of a proud or fearful ego. Pride will always regret making a fool of itself. And fear will always regret acts that jeopardize comfort and safety. So feeling sorry for something we have done is in itself no sign of virtue. Someone might say to you, well, I feel sorry. Well, who cares if you feel sorry? Repent. Do something about it. Great that you feel sorrowful, but sorrow does not equal true, genuine repentance. Judas felt sorry. He felt bad, but there was no repentance. But godly regret is the reflex of a conscience that has wounded God's ego, not its own. This is why David says, against you and you only have I sinned in reference to his sin against Bathsheba. He certainly sinned against Bathsheba and against her husband Uriah, but he knows that the primary person he has offended in life is God. And this is what someone who's involved with regret and not repentance fails to see. Godly regret grieves that God's name has come into disrepute. The focus of godly regret is God. So true repentance means feeling more than just bad. True repentance involves a love for Jesus that conquers your love for self. And beautifully, Jesus can conquer the guilt that goes with it. And then finally, beware of thinking that indifference about Jesus is safe. There are so many people that I've run into in my lifetime who were raised in Christian homes or they're around Christian things and then they have this cavalier whatever attitude about 
what God claims about God's claim over their life. You know, you can say whatever about two choices that have no moral or practical implications. For instance, if your wife says, "Hey, you want to go out to McDonald's or Wendy's?" you're like, "Whatever." It's pretty safe. There's no moral problem there. In fact, your wife, if she asked you, hey, which blouse do you like better, this one or that one? You could safely say, you know, whatever. If your wife says to me, do these jeans make me look fat? <laughs> A statement of, hey, whatever, is not helpful. <laughs> so there are situations that, depending on the context, a whatever response would be acceptable. And in other case, when it's frankly dangerous, maybe even for one's own life in that case, right? so why is the situation different with jesus here's why because the bible tells us that our innate sinfulness and jesus's innate lordship demand a response and a failure to respond to jesus or a failure to say to him whatever is a response that is not just indifference It's actually passive insurrection. To throw up your hands and say, you claim to be Lord, whatever, is in effect to not realize that we enter the world as a part of a rebellious race that has already committed spiritual treason. And unless you repent and turn from this position of sin, you remain under judgment. So to say, whatever, is not a position that is safe. So the calling is this, friends. The calling is to not be like Judas, full of greed, full of regret, and full of ruin. The calling is to be warned not to be like Pilate. By deciding to do nothing, you're deciding to do something very dangerous. Some of you throw up your hands about your marriage, whatever. About your morals, whatever. About Jesus' claim to be Lord of your life, whatever. And the reality is you are not safe. Your indifference is an offense to a righteous God who demands your complete allegiance and is paid for it through the shed blood of His Son. So heed the warning signs of Pilate and Judas and turn in faith to Christ. Put off your whatever attitude and instead run to Christ and say, I need you because I have made a mess of whatever I have touched. So Lord, help us to not run our lives right off a cliff by not heeding the warnings of these two men They are given to us for a very specific purpose in the content of dealing with your son to show us two very different responses that resulted in tragic ends. And I pray that today we would turn from indifference and we would turn from our greed. I pray, God, that today there would be people who would say this this is God's word to me about my soul. And that as a result of this sermon today, they would not leave just with whatever, but instead would decide, Lord Jesus, I come to you. Maybe come back to you. Or maybe come for the first time. Lord, thank you that you have died for whatever statement souls. You've died for people who would come if they would only come and acknowledge their sin, acknowledge their need, and receive you as Lord and Savior. We thank you for being so merciful to us, a treasonous, insurrectionally oriented people. We thank you for your mercy.
And we ask for it again afresh and anew this day in Jesus' name. Amen.